So let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we left off in verse 19. Let's pray together. Father, we do take joy in you. We thank you for who you are. As we have sung tonight about your grace, we're so thankful that you've forgiven us, that you've wiped away our sins, that you're our dad. And we come to you tonight in need of you. Lord, asking that you would take these truths of scripture and seek them deep into our hearts and lives, that we would experience joy in you so that you could be glorified. So would you please pour out your spirit upon this time, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy for me to give myself a hall pass on this area of joy. When we look at sin, it's easy to be convicted of sexual sin or bitterness or anger because those are big issues. But it's also important to realize that grumbling and complaining is a big issue to God. But oftentimes that's down here on my list as far as conviction. I want to give myself the right to be able to complain and to, to grumble a little bit. If not outwardly, then, then inwardly. And the truth of Philippians is this. It's joy. Chapter one is Jesus. To realize that our joy is found in our relationship with Jesus. That in his presence is the fullness of joy. Chapter two is what? Others. To esteem others better than ourselves. Always a daily decision always a daily battle. And then finally, you, me, we, we become last in the equation, and that's the outline for the book of Philippians. Jesus told us in John chapter 15, I want to read this to you. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be remain in you and that your joy may be full. Do you guys picture Jesus as a grumbler or a complainer or one that was joyful? Extremely joyful, right? Scripture actually tells us that, that he was anointed with happiness above all of his fellows because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. What attracted people to Jesus was his joy. So at the end of his life, Jesus says to his disciples, I want to give you my joy, that it would remain in you and that your joy would be full. So think about that. We have the possibility to have the same joy as Christ, to be able to walk through life in a joyful attitude. Tonight's theme, tonight's message is this, that's joy and pain. doesn't mean that there's the absence of problems or difficulties, as we'll see in Paul's life. So much pain, but yet there's joy. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon as he talked about joy. There is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. One dolorous spirit brings a kind of plague into a house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all of the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you influence over the lives of others. We think about all of the beautifying treatments, all of the ways to make our physical bodies to be more attractive. Here's one for free. It won't cost you anything tonight. Be joyful. That's attractive. It's glorifying to God, and it's attractive 
to others. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. It's when we find our joy in God that that becomes our protection. It becomes our strength. If you remember from last week, we hit some glorious truths, didn't we? That thanksgiving results in more thanksgiving. Did you try that this week? Did you find yourself being thankful for the big and the small? Thankful for who God is, to the provision that he's given to you, to your family, to where you live. Did you eat some food tonight? Are you going to to eat some food tonight? Being thankful then results in more thankfulness. What was another truth from the beginning of chapter one? God is a great finisher. You remember that? He's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. So he's begun a good work and he's going to finish it. Also, we saw that God's at work in our circumstances to bring about the furtherance of the gospel. Paul was in chains so that the gospel could be furthered. So we pick up where we left off in verse 19. It says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul believes in prayer. Why? Because he prayed for the church of Philippi, but he's also asking for prayer. Do you have a difficult time asking for prayer? You're willing to pray for others, but it's hard to request prayer. Paul had the humility and the belief in prayer to say, would would you pray for me? Because I know that your prayers are going to result in my deliverance. Now, does that mean that Paul is saying, if you pray, then I'll be delivered out of prison? Possibly. But as we read in context, Paul's saying, I could go to heaven, I could die here in prison, or I could be set free. And he's in the midst of that, that tension. So it's either deliverance to go out of prison or the ultimate deliverance for Paul to go to heaven. But he says, I know God's going to hear your prayer and it's going to result in the deliverance that's his will. Then also he says the supply of the spirit. Other Bible translations translate supply as help because that's the job of the spirit. The role of the spirit is to be our helper. So think about those that you love. If someone is in a difficult place, in a prison-like experience, and you pray for them, that could result in their deliverance one way or another, and also the supply of the Spirit. That the Spirit would come and bring that support, that strength, that help that is needed. Verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So this is pretty big terms for Paul. He says, earnest expectation and his hope. So this is what he's put his, his confidence in. This is what he's looking forward to in the future. The biblical definition of hope is not a wish or a whim. Are you guys aware of the fact that the NBA finals are happening right now? I'm a basketball fan. I've been following it a little bit this year because you have LeBron James, who plays for the Cleveland Clack Cavaliers. For the last six years, he's been in the NBA finals. That's a big deal. Six years in a row. Do you know how many of those he's won? Only one time. Only one time out of the last six years. And then you have the Golden State Warriors who won last year, and it's game three. Now, I could say, I hope that the Cavs are going to win, which I don't. But just for the illustration, I hope that the Cavs are going to win. But that would just be a wish and a whim, wouldn't it? Who knows? They're down 0-2. LeBron's a great player, but he's a proven loser in the NBA championships, okay? So that's the reality of the situation. So if I say that, well, it's true. He's lost five. He's, lost five. he's won one. So if I say if I hope he's going to win, it's going to be a wish. But if, 
that's not the way it is in Scripture. When we say, I hope, it's confidence in who God is and the promise of his word. I think I was getting myself in trouble there a little bit. (laughs) So what is he hoping in? That he's not going to be ashamed, even though he's in prison. But with all boldness, as always, so now also whether Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So if you're taking notes tonight, I think there's four things about joy and pain. The first is joy's expectation. Paul says, I have joy in the midst of pain because I have this expectation that Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. And when we can come to that focus in our life, that expectation, I don't know how my circumstances are going to work out. I don't know whether I'm going to live through this or if I'm going to die, but I do know that Christ is going to be magnified in my body. Now, to me, this is an overwhelming concept that you have God, who's so huge, so powerful, so holy, created the universe, and yet he's chosen to save us. We're sinners. Then Christ comes and lives in us, that we have the ability through the power of the Spirit for God to actually be magnified. That in someone's perspective, their understanding of who God is could increase because you're in their life. I'm sure you've had that happen at some point in your journey where God has brought a believer into your life, maybe before you knew Christ as your Savior or some point since you'd received Christ your Savior, where they've impacted you, where you've understood something greater about Christ because of them. Christ was magnified in their body. That, that's incredible. And we think about the amount of potential or purpose or the way that God could use our lives to where he could cause our bodies to reflect God, where God is magnified in someone's perspective. Notice these two words in verse 20. He says, as always as always. Paul had come to terms with that his body belonged to the Lord, that his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, as always, I've already determined if I have breath, God's going to be magnified in my body. My life doesn't belong to me. It's the Lord's. Have you thought of your body in those terms? God, my body exists for you. It's created for you. I want it to bring you glory. And then in death, My body's going to glorify the Lord. Paul's realizing he may die a martyr's death. He may be killed for his faith, and he's not going to deny his faith. In his death, in his passing, he's going to magnify the Lord. So if we can come to this expectation in our lives, it's going to result in joy. I don't know what the path's going to be. I don't know if there's going to be ups and downs. I do know there's going to be challenges because Jesus promised that. But this has been determined. This is my aim. This is my goal that my body would magnify the Lord, that my body would glorify the Lord. And so that's the case, whether I live or I die, I'm magnifying the Lord. Because you could see for Paul the kind of turmoil of, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be killed. I don't know if I'm going to stay in prison. I don't know if I'm going to get sick in prison. Or I could be set free. So he saves himself from all that worry and anxiety and says, either way, I'm good. Because if I die, God's going to be magnified. If I continue to live in prison or out of prison, God's going to be magnified. In verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So it's joy's mission. So first, joy's expectation that God's going to be magnified. But now here's joy's mission. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the foundation of joy. If we're going to enter into biblical joy, joy in the midst of pain, it's to realize that the source is Jesus. He's the living water. He's the breath, breath, bread of life. And as we fellowship with him, as we spend time with him, as we're obedient to him and follow him, he is our life. The reason that Paul can have joy in prison is because Christ is his life. And if Christ is your life, no one can take Christ from you, amen? So you can go to prison, you can go to a difficult location, you can go through trials that you never thought imaginable, but those trials cannot take your life from you. Hold your place here and turn to Romans chapter 8. And let's look at the the end of Romans chapter 8. I think it expresses this reality that we go through trials in life, but nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8 verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For me to live is Christ. If Christ is my life, then no trial, no tribulation, no difficulty can separate me from the love of Christ. If Christ is our life, then death is gain. That's incredible. Let that sink in for a little bit. This is telling us that death is conquered. There's statements in the Bible that are Jesus the Lamb of God. And there's also statements of Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is a lion statement from Jesus. That he's conquered death. That he's taken the sting of death. So here's Paul. Very much could be afraid of death. Afraid of a brutal death. And if you've watched someone die, watched a loved one die, it's brutal. There's nothing easy about death. On top of that, if someone is executed, they're they're beheaded, they're hanged, Paul has to be in a place of turmoil of this, but he realizes, my life is Christ, so if I die, it's going to be my last breath here on earth and my first breath in heaven. So joy can protect us from the fear of death. Joy can protect us from allowing death to put its fangs inside of us and be able to to control us. Some of you may be facing that. You're you're facing a terminal illness and death is all of a sudden more imminent than you ever thought possible. And you can take hold of this verse and go, my life is Christ and if God chooses for me to die, then it's my gain because I'm gonna see the Lord and I'm gonna behold the Lord. Now let's flip this on its head for just a minute. If anything other than Jesus is my life, then death is not my gain. 
So if wealth is my life, I suffer great loss and death. Isn't that true? Where does my wealth go? It doesn't go with me. So then death is not, not my gain. How about fame? My life is fame. I've got to be famous. Well, what happens the, the moment that you die? There goes your fame. The next generation forgets all about you. If you were to, for just a moment, think about what would you fill in the blank? For me to live is family. For me to live is ministry. For me to live is a promotion. For me to live is financial stability. If an outside person came and watched your life for a month and wrote a blog on what your life is, what would be filled in there? Their life is, this is their priority. Their life is, this is their passion. And it may be that God is convicting us and he's stirring us to say, find more of your life in Jesus. Allow Jesus to be your portion. Are you looking to a relationship? They can even be good things in its improper place, and it's not going to provide the life that Christ intended. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what happens when we stop looking to Jesus to be the source of our joy. I have a theory that God allows all aspects of life to be empty apart from him so that we would look to him to be our life, so that we would look to him to be our joy. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is joy's mission. If we're going to enter into joy and biblical joy, we have to make Christ our life, then death will be our gain. It's always difficult when you go to an unbeliever's funeral, right? Because you know, unless somehow at the end of their life they turn to the Lord, they're most likely in hell. It's difficult to go to someone's funeral where you're not sure where they're at. Maybe they believed in the Lord, maybe they didn't. At at times they did, but there was really no fruit in, in their life, and you're just left with this question, did they trust Christ or not? Then as difficult as it is, it's a celebration to go to a believer's funeral that their life has been Christ. They weren't perfect, but they loved Christ. They trusted Christ. You knew they had a relationship with Christ, and death is their gain. They're with the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul's saying if God continues to give me life, I know there's going to be fruit for my labor. I know that I'm going to continue to be able to serve into God's kingdom. But he's saying what I would choose, I couldn't tell. Paul's saying if I had the choice whether to go to heaven or stay here on earth, I don't know what I would pick. And verse 23 says, For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in you is more needful for you. It's joy's tension, number three. Joy and pain, joy's tension is this. As you go through difficulty in life, like Paul, you're in a prison experience, you're going to find yourself longing to be with the Lord. Amen? There's nothing like a good old-fashioned trial that makes you go, oh, I can't wait for heaven. 
It might be as simple as the stinking lawnmower won't work. And you're like, man, in heaven, I'm not going to need this rust bucket any longer, right? No more pain. No more sorrow. No more getting the news that someone's got cancer or a 13-year-old child's been kidnapped. No more news of ISIS. No more Hitlers on the rise in the world. Beyond that, to behold God, to see God, the Lamb that was slain, to enter into the chorus of elders around the throne room of God. Ezekiel describes these creatures, these heavenly beings that are around the throne of God. And as you read it in Ezekiel and you read of it in Revelation, just go, that's weird. They're kind of these chronicle of Narnia type of characters, type of creatures where they've got four faces. Read it for yourself. And it's just like, what is that? You can enter into worship with them. Walk on streets of gold. What's God's message with streets of gold? What's most valuable here on earth? Gold. Maybe around $1,600 an ounce. In heaven, it's just asphalt. What's most valuable here is least valuable in heaven. Can we agree with what the scripture says? To be with Christ is far better. Amen? Amen. And Paul's saying, I feel that. If they take me out, that's okay. It's my gain. I don't have to fear death. I'm protected from death. My joy in the Lord protects me from death. Jesus has taken the sting of death. But there's verse 24. It says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul loves the church of Philippi, and he's saying, I would love the opportunity to come and see you again, to encourage you again, to pray together, to be in the scriptures together. Let's be honest. If we could choose, if God said, I'm giving you the choice, which he doesn't, it's up to him. Hey, Eric, you could go home to be with the Lord tonight. Oh, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty fabulous. But there's a big nevertheless, isn't there? It's my beautiful wife and four kids. I want to do life with my wife, grow old together, see my kids grow up, be able to hopefully walk with them through the joys and the trials of life and the ups and downs of life. I love pastoring. I love being here at RMC. I want to continue to do life with you guys and grow together. I love Colorado Springs. Have a heart for this community. Looking forward to what God's going to continue to do in our community. And it's the tension of joy that we want to go to heaven, but there's work for us to do here on earth. Hear me out on this, is you should feel this tension. Because if we don't long to go to heaven, we're missing the point because that's our ultimate destination. So there should be that hope and that expectation that this life is not all there is. But our desire to go to heaven isn't because this life is bad or purposeless. Does that make sense? It's because heaven is far better, but this life is good and this life is full of purpose. So our desire for heaven shouldn't quench the desire to see God use our lives here on earth. And there should be a part of us that says, I do want to stay here and fulfill the purpose that God has for me here. And that's why it's up to him. As long as he gives us breath, as long as we wake up and he hasn't taken us home to be with the Lord, there's a job to do. I want to serve the Lord. I want to see that fruit. I want to fulfill the purposes in which 
he's placed here for me. So there's that hard press, that tension between heaven and being here on earth. In verse 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul seems really assured and confident that he's not going to die in prison. Look at verse 25 again. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. It may be that God spoke to Paul and said, Paul, this isn't going to be your end. You're going to get out of here and you're going to go visit the church of Philippi in Greece in the region of Macedonia. The tone is very different than when Paul writes to 2 Timothy, to second, the epistle of 2 Timothy. He says, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Basically saying, my job here on earth is done. And we know from church history, shortly after writing that letter, he died. He was executed. He was martyred. He knew that his time was coming. But here he seems to know that he still has a job to do. Sometimes God does that for people, doesn't he? They just know, I'm going to get through this. God still has work for me to do. I'd love to go to heaven, but it's not my time yet. And then sometimes people just know. They know. They start saying their goodbyes. Their hearts are prepared. I'd love to stay, but God's calling me home, and it's my time to go be with the Lord. In verse 27, it's joy's exhortation. It's the the fourth thing about joy and pain. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct, it means to live as citizens, to allow your conduct to line up with your citizenship. Philippi was a Roman colony, so they would resonate with this. They're Roman citizens that are colonizing in this region of Greece and in Macedonia. And what Paul is saying to them is he's saying, let your conduct be worthy of citizens of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the fact that you're citizens of heaven. I find this to be really challenging because think about conduct of the gospel. First, what's the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures. It's the name of Jesus, the proclamation of the cross. So it's our lives, what we do with our bodies, does it line up with this message of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, immediately when we talk about conduct, we think about all of the things that we're not supposed to do, all of the things that we're to abstain from as Christians in biblical morality. And that is true. That is absolutely true. That's part of the conduct of the gospel. But it's only a small portion. What's a bigger part of it are the things that God is calling us to do. Think about it this way. Of the conduct of Jesus Christ, Was it the things that he didn't do or the things that he did do that really impact you? It's all the things that he did. The Pharisees had good moral conduct, didn't they? But their hearts were corrupt. Jesus had good moral conduct, but his heart was holy, obviously. And then it displayed in his actions of love, like his conversation with the woman at the well. The feeding of the 5,000 the healing of the paralytic, casting out 
the demons that were inside of the demoniac. And I think a lot of times we reduce down the Christian life only to the things that we're not supposed to do, and we forget about all the things that God is calling us to. To live a life of love, live a life of sacrifice, to allow our conduct to be worthy of the gospel. I've been personally challenged in the way that I live out the gospel or the lack of living out the gospel in my own neighborhood. It can be really easy to see our homes as a refuge to get away from the world. So we do ministry outside of our homes. We go to our workplaces and we love on the community. But when we come home, we put the garage door down and we don't love on our neighbors. And how is my life being a conduct of the gospel to those that live on my street? Is the only thing that they know about me in Christ is that I, what time I drive to church? Is that all our neighbors know of us when it comes to our testimony of Jesus Christ is, well, I know they leave for church on Sunday mornings at 8.45. Or I know that they leave for church on Wednesday nights at, at 6.30. And I don't want my conduct to my neighbors just to be what I don't do, but I want it to be the things that I engage in that they would know that they're loved, that they would know that they're cared for, that I would get involved in their lives. And that's the conduct of the gospel. And that's when I think the Christian life really gets exciting and when there's joy in our lives. Scripture talks about having happy feet. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen? There's nothing that will bring a smile to your face quicker than to tell somebody that Jesus loves them. To be in relationship with someone, to invest in their life, and declare to them the love of Christ that Jesus died for them and rose again. So he's exhorting the church to allow their conduct to be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's saying, I have a hunch that when I'm there, you guys act a little bit different than when I'm absent. So whether I'm present or I'm absent, I want you guys to do these things because of the presence of Christ. Not my presence, but the presence of Christ. It reminds me of growing up. I've got an older brother. He's 22 months older than me, a younger sister. She's nine years younger than me. And my brother and I, at times when my parents would leave us home alone, there was a whole different set of behavior than when my parents were home, right? And there was one particular evening that we were watching some stuff on, on TV that we weren't supposed to be, be watching, and we heard the Ford Fairmont station wagon pull up into the driveway and into the garage. So we quickly changed the channel, of which we had to get up off of the couch, walk to the TV, and turn the channel. But we made it just in time. Mom and Dad walk in, and my brother leans over to me, and he says, Mom's the word. Now, I had never heard that expression before. So I look at him like deer in headlights. I'm like, Mom is what? Mom's what? He says, mom's the word. And of course, the second time, dad heard, and he's like, what are you, what are you guys hiding? And we were busted. Because we had two different standards. We had the standard of dad's watching, mom's watching, and then we had the standard of mom and dad are gone. So it's going to be whatever we would desire. And the true indication of our character is when the Paul is not in our lives, when we're alone. 
and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Paul is concerned that him being in prison would cause the church to shrink back. He says, don't be afraid of your adversaries. Don't be afraid of Satan. Don't be afraid that people would throw you into jail, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. So if someone is coming against you to the point where they're throwing you in prison, it's proof of the fact that they're on the road to destruction, proof of perdition. But if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's proof of the fact that you're saved. It's proof of the fact that God has granted to you salvation. For to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. That's not one of those promises that we're often reminded of. It's been granted to you to believe, but it's also been granted to you that you would suffer, that you would go through hardship, that you would go through your own prison-like experiences. Every one of us is going to have the opportunity to discover joy in the midst of pain. It's where Paul's at. He's in a place of pain, but yet he's discovering joy. He's entering in to joy. And here's the challenge. It says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Another translation of the same verse, it says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. What's the conflict that Paul's in? He's being persecuted because of his commitment to the gospel. He's saying, be willing to enter into that conflict. And then, because of that, he has the conflict of, maybe I'm going to heaven, maybe I'm going to stay here on earth, and I have this tension between the two. And suffering brings us into that tension. Maybe 10 years ago, it'd be hard for us to imagine suffering for the gospel's sake, entering into this conflict where we would be willing to suffer loss for the cause of Christ here in the United States of America. But now it's not so hard to imagine, isn't it? We can start to anticipate, well, what's it going to be like if I walk with Christ? What's it going to be like if I stand for Christ? What's it going to be like in the next 5, 10, 15 years as pastors teach the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter and don't back down from biblical truth on cultural issues? What takes place at your workplace if you were to open up your mouth about Jesus Christ on your lunch hour, not even on paid time? We're finding there to be support groups for all different kinds of sin, but there's not support groups in your workplace for Christians, is there? That's the one thing that's not tolerated. And it's easy for us to go, well, what happened? We're just entering into what's always been. This has been biblical reality. Christ was crucified. He's our master. We walk in his footsteps. And for apparently for the church of Philippi, there was that tendency to say, well, I don't know if I want to press into that point where I suffer persecution. And Paul's saying, engage in the conflict. Be willing to suffer. Go through the suffering in order so that Christ can be magnified. The two go hand in hand, suffering and Christ magnified. Christ is being magnified in Paul's body because he's going through suffering. The love of God was manifest in the flesh of Jesus Christ because he was crucified. 
Sometimes the only way to carry the message to a lost and dying world that's deaf to Jesus is to suffer. And when they see us suffer and they see Christ shine through, then the reality of Christ hits them right between the eyes. You go, God is real. Look at the way that he has sustained them in the loss of their spouse. Look at the way that he strengthened them through this job loss. Look, they were persecuted and they didn't deny their faith. And I, I'd be the last one to say I want to sign up for suffering. I'm not looking for suffering. I'm sure you're not looking for suffering. You don't have to ask for it. What does the scripture tell us? What does verse 29 tell us? It tells us that it will be granted to us for the sake of Christ. It's a gift that God will give to us to be able to bear the name of Christ. Though I don't want to sign up for suffering, this is what I do know in my life, is suffering has never been wasted. Suffering has always been the tool that God's used me, used to draw me near to him, to reveal himself to me, a deeper walk with Christ, and the two go hand in hand. So here's the question. Is it, can you have joy in pain? Maybe you come in tonight and you, like Paul, you're saying, there's just so much pain in my life, so much difficulty in my life. I don't know how I could have joy in the midst of this. And the answer is yes, you can have joy in pain, knowing that whatever the results are, you're going to magnify the Lord in your body. No matter what the mechanic says, if it's $50 of repair or $500 of repair, I'm going to magnify the Lord in my body. Whether it's by life or by death, if I'm going to make it through this cancer or if it's going to take me home to be with the Lord, I'm going to magnify the Lord in my body. We can have joy and pain knowing that Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Because he's your life, then you can have joy and pain. How do you make that practical? When we say, Jesus is my life, what does that mean practically? It means to first trust in him and believe in him for salvation. Trust our circumstances to him. Worship him. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Follow him. Walk in surrender and obedience. Those are some of the things that defines a life in Christ. Can we have joy and pain? Yes. If we die, it's our gain. It's eternal life. This joy is so strong that it even conquers death and protects us from death. As we end tonight, let's go to this place of worship. Psalm 16 tells us that in your presence is the fullness of joy. It's one thing to hear a message on joy, and it's another thing to enter into God's presence, to take joy in Him. Communion's available. Don't rush. Come take the elements, go to a quiet place in the sanctuary, reflect upon Christ, draw near to Christ, remember his broken body and his shed blood. So let's stand and we'll move into a time of communion. Jesus, we thank you that you're our life. You're the vine. You're our good shepherd. You're the living water. You're the bread of life. You're the light of the world. We want to come and remember you, your sacrifice, the gospel, your death, the resurrection, draw near to you, worship you. Would you reveal sin in our lives, areas that you want to change, areas that you want to convict and bring freedom? And as we go through the book of Philippians this summer, may we find ourselves really operating in joy, even in the midst of pain. We pray for those tonight that are in a difficult time, being crushed, 
that you would minister to them, you would strengthen them, that you would remove fear. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.